Hi, this is Matt Stagliano, and thanks for being part of the Artist Forge. We're a community of creatives who help each other think like an artist by discussing creativity as a process instead of a skill or a talent. We believe everyone has what it takes to create something amazing. We just need some encouragement and inspiration along the way. What you're about to hear is a live recording of one of our daily discussions on the Clubhouse app. If you like what you hear, I encourage you to join our private Facebook group or visit us on the web at theartistforge.com. Now on to the show. Welcome, everybody. Ooh, that was my coat. That was loud. To Morning Walk with the Artist Forge. My name is Nicole York. I will be your host. And I am so excited to get started this morning. I actually have a kind of interesting and random topic for conversation. My brother and I were having a conversation yesterday, and we were talking a little bit about music. And he was telling me as a musician how interesting it was that one of his favorite uh, composers, Hans Zimmer, actually finds the timing of the music to be more important than the melody when he's writing. And that kind of sparked an entire conversation where I was realizing how important it is for us to consume other types of artwork, other things um, that are disparate from what our normal art is. So if you're a photographer, um, we tend to consume a lot of photography. And if you're an illustrator, we tend to consume a lot of illustration. And I think that that can really hamper us in our ability to dig deep and understand things about art that are kind of far beyond what our capabilities are. It kind of keeps us trapped in a way. Um, And being able to think about these different art forms and the approaches behind them, and you wouldn't necessarily think about music in the terms of it being, you know, something important to learn when it comes to making visual art. But maybe it is. I mean, being able to consume that stuff and to figure out why musicians make the decisions they do. I'm always wondering when we learn things like that, what can we steal? (laughs) I know that sounds like a weird thing to say. But what can we steal from those other artists and the way that they think and the way that they approach? Because my guess is that if you were to ask any musician, what's important when you're composing a song that you want to go with the movie, you wouldn't necessarily think that they would say the spaces in between the beats, right? Like the silence, that's the important part. But according to Hans Zimmer, maybe it is. And so when we start thinking about the way that other artists create and the mindset behind the things that they do, sorry, I needed a drink of water real quick. Um, The mindset behind the things that they do, how can that change the way that we think? How can that change the way that we approach what we do and what we create? So I'm really curious to hear, you know, obviously beginning with the, the moderators this morning, but I'm really curious to hear what kind of other artwork do you, do you get into, I guess? Um, what things do you study or look at? And do you ever study the approach? How does that affect the way that you think about creating your own work? Um, 
I find I find the notion really, really interesting. So I'm going to mute myself for just a second. Um, I'd, I'd love to get some initial responses and then start digging into this a little bit more. I'll jump in because I think the the example that you were using about music and Hans Zimmer specifically um, really kind of resonated with me. I have been a musician my whole life, a str struggling, horrible musician, um, but I've always been involved in music for as long as I can remember. And I know that that background in music has helped me in my video production, meaning I can be thinking of what the video needs to be and how it needs to tell its story. And that can be with melody. It could be with timing. It could be, um, you know, I shape the video to fit the music or I shape the music to fit the video. I think there's this symbiotic relationship there in terms of what emotion is being created either through the music or the video that in turn helps me look at my photography and say, how can I make my photography more cinematic or how can I tell a better story? And while I'm creating, I've got to have music behind me and that music will also influence how I'm creating my, my photography. When I'm working in metal and I'm making jewelry, there's a whole different focus there. Again, not a jeweler, but I just like to create in different materials. But music for me plays a part there. So music is central to what I do in everything that I create. It sets the mood for me. It sets the tempo. It sets um, how quickly I produce and how many iterations I need to go through based on how I'm feeling. It's that emotion that gets drawn out of me by this other artwork that then contributes to all the other art that I create. Does any of that make sense? I just, I felt like... I saw an instant connection when you said that about tempo and the in-between parts. I saw an immediate connection with everything that I do and everything that I create um, falling into that example. Did that hit the mark for you, Nicole? I mean, it's so interesting. And I know a lot of photographers who do actually shoot with music. And we're losing you doing NaNoWriMo, which if people have never heard of that, it's National Novel Writing Month. And you're basically just trying to write a novel in a month. And a lot of the people who do that in, in, the, uh, in the actual sign-up sheet, when you're signing up for the program through the website, they ask you what your playlist is. So they're like, what's your playlist, you know? Um, and how, how is this other art form contributing to helping you with this one? And uh, so it seems, I mean, I think music is a great example to start with because so many of us can really connect with um, the idea of how music makes us feel. And I found when I'm talking to my brother about music, I'm not a musician, um, but I found he'll send me his pieces and he'll be like, hey, you know, here's something I'm working on. And I will notice when the music is not telling a story, like when it does not have a resolution or a beginning, middle and an end. And, or when it seems like he's pushing things too hard and not paying attention to those in between spaces. And I'm not entirely sure. So for that example, I don't even know how I would take that and apply it to my own work, but it makes complete sense to me that you would be able to see that as something that 
resonates. And I, I, I just, I find, I just find the thought so interesting. Um, so did anybody else kind of get, get anything from that? I mean, we're going to tackle kind of other art forms as well, but. The, the mat or music thing is interesting. Um, so I've been re-binge watching uh, the show Fringe, if anyone has watched that. And uh, it's kind of like a crime, you know, serial show, sort of X-Files-y um, and gets into some weird science. But anyway, so the episode I watched the other day actually had to do with music and they were discussing how music is mathematical. And um, I mean, a lot of it really is for anyone who plays music. I mean, it's finding these different kinds of patterns that are mathematical in practice. And a lot of that even applies to visual art. Like when we talked about visual literacy a while ago, we talked about things like rhythm and repetition of pattern, which, and almost applying these same kind of mathematical concepts like you would find even in an art form like music to visual art. And you can kind of see that when you play like an audio visualizer or something, you can see these patterns and where, how, how the, the sound becomes a visual element. Um, so I just, I've, I've, I've been thinking about that the last couple of days, actually, because I thought that was, that was fascinating, just looking at how those patterns can be expressed in different ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, I look at other kinds of art all the time, just because they're like the more input you have, the more creative you can think. And so whether that's things like sound, whether there's a story in a song that's so inspiring, you know, or reading something, like I feel like language has so much power for finding new kinds of inspiration. Um, so reading a book, listening to music, reading a poem, uh, even listening to things in like another language that you don't necessarily speak and just hearing kind of the cadence and the tone and like what words make you feel a certain way. And um, again, finding those patterns, you can see that even linguistically, which I think is kind of fascinating, like how words relate to one another and how they make you feel based just on the sound. So yeah, I mean, there's so many different connections you can pull from so many different kinds of art forms. I love that you use that example um, because there's one particular poem that I always think of when I think of a writer who was using everything at their disposal to try to invoke a feeling in the reader and that is the poem, The Bells by Edgar Allan Poe. And so if anybody ever decides to go, if you've never heard this poem before, the way that it's written, the, the cadence of the way that you're supposed to read it is repetitious. And the, the words themselves are, the best one is tintabulation, right? And when you say that word, it's not a word you're ever really going to hear in common speech, but tintabulation sounds like the ringing of bells. And um, it's cool to think about the way that writing and reading are both visual and audio, even when you're not reading out loud. And how can we sometimes translate that to visuals as, as photographers or as painters? You know, if you've ever seen a work that made you feel cold, right? Or um, seen something that made you, it didn't just excite you visually, right? Be like, oh, there's a lot of interesting things for my eyes here, but it actually excites other emotions as well. And I mean, music, speech, those are such great examples of ways that you can tap into deeper parts of somebody without them ever, they don't realize it. I think that's one of the most fun things about writing a story is I get to create something without ever having access to you. And then I get to put visions in your head from a completely different part of the planet. And I do find, just like you, Becca, that those things really do influence my ability to be creative because 
the more that I consume that way, I know I've talked about visual libraries before, but the more that I consume that way, the more that I put into my creative library, and all of a sudden I have all of these things to draw from when something sparks my imagination. So maybe at that point I do hear a song or I see an illustration or something just sparks a creative thought. I'm able to capture that and then pull from everything that I've ever consumed that I can still remember in any case and every idea that it's given me and just start drawing from those things. And it's not as if we do those things purposefully. We don't go, let me jump into my you know, library and just start grabbing what I can grab. But we do it instinctively because we're always pulling from our knowledge base. So even though some of that stuff doesn't necessarily seem like it might translate to creators of a visual, it really does. And in ways that we would never necessarily expect. And I know I can see so much of the things that inspire you outside of the visual field in your work. Like there's an anthropological um, heart to so much of your work that's really a key to see. And yet you would never necessarily think to yourself as a photographer, I bet if I was interested in anthropology, it would do cool things for my artwork. And yet it does. I mean, that's another thing too, like looking and consuming things that aren't necessarily created as art, like things like anthropology and like learning about science and history or looking at images from like microscopes and stuff. Cause again, you start seeing these shapes and building that visual library in your head and can start making these really interesting visual connections for yourself. Um, you know, I think an example we gave once upon a time was talking about um, using fabrics in uh, in like a maternity photo shoot, right? And like, how do those fabrics elicit certain feelings and how are they reminiscent of other shapes that aren't necessarily um, what they are, I guess. Like they could be reminiscent of a flower or if we look at patterns like um, the, the, oh, I can't remember the word, the, the things in your lungs, right? A little gooey little bits that stick out in your lungs and how they can kind of that that's the word that's the word yeah and like they are reminiscent of the branches of a tree or you know the separation and tessellation in a lightning strike like there's all these different things you can look at that aren't necessarily created by artists but that can inspire you artistically because they're reminiscent of other things oh so true and it's really cool to, to, to see this and recognize the way that the mind works. It's just super fascinating. But I think the reason that, um, the reason that I wanted to bring it up as related to artists is because often artists will share things with, with the community, you know, their techniques or their thoughts. And in fact, it's actually kind of expected that artists will share their artist statement or whatever. Um, and it's, it's through those things when we don't just see what they make, but when we get to hear their mindset, that we really start to unlock some of those secrets of why certain things work for them. And I've, I know I've mentioned this before, but I remember how upset everybody was um, when Annie Leibovitz did her masterclass because they were really expecting to be able to watch this masterclass and learn how she puts up her lights and be like, there, now my photos look like her photos. When what she actually gave people was her philosophy behind what drives the things that she does. You're not gonna be able to watch that and put up lights that mimic the way that she lights her images, but you're gonna hear from her that she does not believe it's important for a photographer to make the subject of a portrait comfortable. 
She does not believe that to be a truism. And so when she appro approaches taking a portrait, she is not doing it from a perspective of, let me make this person feel confident, powerful, and you know, able to be themselves in front of my camera. She goes, what is interesting about this person in this situation? How can I exploit that? If this elderly gentleman takes off his, his shirt and you can see his bones through his skin, that's really interesting. How do I exploit that? How do I make that the subject of the photo? Because it's still this man and it's still aspects of who he is, but it's not what so many of us try to go for when we think of portraiture. We often think of, you know, I want to make my subjects comfortable and they need to be able to feel like they can be themselves and all of these things. And that's true if that's our approach, right? And so being able to hear from other artists, like Hans Zimmer saying, it's the timing that's important to me. It's not necessarily the melody because the melody could say a lot of things, but the timing is what creates tension, right? And if you listen to so much of his work, that's so, so true. As I was listening to the um, soundtrack for Interstellar, and it's like, man, just th those moments between when a note hits, you're waiting for it, right? There's that pregnant pause that just has you on the edge of your seat waiting for the next thing to happen. And that obviously is really suitable to the movie. But how do we take understanding the way that other artists approach the things that they do and steal from them and grab them and apply them to our work? So I know I've been talking for a while. I want to make sure that Kat and Bassam have a chance to share and would love to hear from people in the audience today as well, because I think probably most of us have had this experience where we have been able to take things from artists outside of our own field in order to expand what we're capable of. I like running the gamut and, you know, you can take inspiration and actually with film, this is really pretty powerful, you know, choosing the music before you run the edit, right? Like you, you have your shot list and you've gone and you've shot everything, but even just the music itself can determine, you know, the flow in, in which you create that edit. So something with, you know, a Mozart concerto versus something with Tool are going to have a completely different impact. So when you take, you know, as, as many senses, right, whether it's audio or visual or even, you know, through touch or movement, um, that can really change the director, the trajectory of whatever it is that, that you are creating. Um, and so I really like to, you know, compound as many senses as I can if I'm about to work on a project and determine, to determine where that's gonna go. I love that. And so when you think about adding senses, is there any way that you approach that? Or is it one of those things that's just kind of instinctual when you're making a visual? Because I bet a lot of people are scratching their heads and going like, well, how can I, how do I add senses to something like photography? Well, it's not so much the, the senses I'm adding to the image. It's the senses I'm using to to change the momentum, right? So like if I really am feeling stuck, I'll jump up and down. Or, you know, a lot of people will use dance as a meditation, that kind of thing. Um, so I will incorporate senses into my process to help that 
ebb and flow. So like when you walk into the studio, like there is a scent, right? Because you're a lizard brain, the only sense that's affected um, by scent is your lizard brain. So that's why it will take you back to certain situations and certain emotional pieces. Uh, when I want to get out of a rut, I'll jump up and down or I'll stop my foot when I get excited. Uh, you know, incorporating those pieces into my process, you know, like we had a client last week that loves EDM. I fucking hate EDM. I cannot stand it. It makes me crazy. I cannot listen to it when I'm shooting. And so when they were coming out of hair and makeup, I was like, I'm sorry, y'all. I got to change the vibe in here. I got them. And they were like, oh, bummer. Da -da -da -da. And I was like, yeah, but if you want work you love, I need to not be in this space. Um, and so, you know, I leverage my senses and what's available to me to create what it is that I want to create. Ooh, I love that. And I bet as you were saying that most people could probably relate that to the way that they work. Um, and, and how even, I mean, even during the editing process, right? Like I know a lot of folks will have certain playlists that they listen to that keep their mind, you know, able to kind of flow without getting stuck or, um, certain smells like candles or, you know, other things that people like to have in their space in order to kind of facilitate that creativity. So that makes a lot of sense. And I would be super interested and maybe it's, uh, maybe it'd be a cool thing to experiment on, like what the difference would be between somebody who works like that and has kind of this ability to incorporate their senses in the process, what it looks like, like, let's say you were to do 10 sessions that way and then 10 sessions with nothing, right? Like nothing, no sound, no nothing. I wonder what the difference would look like in your imagery and how that would manifest itself because I bet it would be present in some way. My cousin is a brewer and a few years ago, I forget the name of the, the brewery worked at. It was over in Greensboro or Raleigh, something like that. Um, but they actually did a, a brew cycle where all they did 24 hours a day was play Wu-Tang during the brewing process. And the taste was significantly different on the same recipe, the following brew cycle based. And the only thing they changed was the music that was played 24 seven at 11 in the brewery. And one brew cycle was Wu-Tang and the next was like, okay, guys, just listen to whatever you want. So the playlist changed every day. But that was the only thing that, that changed as far as the recipe and the taste of the beer was different. That is so cool. Yeah, I love that. Vibrations are real, man. They really do affect Frequency. us in different ways. For real. <sighs> Which is why... Uh, why was one of the main points in my novel <laughs> if anybody's ever read it you'll be able to tell anyway so Basam, um is there anything that you can think of as far as you know the influence from other artists that kind of helps you know expand your creative capabilities oh boy i uh feel either innocently ignorant or ignorantly innocent about this whole subject and about my interest in arts. I've never really had any interest in any form of art most of my life. And it's only through discovering photography that I started discovering uh, 
other forms of arts, but also discovering that whether I have an interest or not and starting to go in that direction. So I, I, I kind of have a hard time contributing to the conversation today other than two things. Uh, more One of them is, is what's been mentioned already. I find I'm, I'm very interested lately in cinematography and films and movies and, and, and seeing how multiple forms of arts, especially music and how music impacts and how music creates drama and, and so on, how it's used in the, in the film. I find myself very attracted to that and I'm learning quite a bit from that that I can apply to my, my own my own work or at least my, my, my process as I do my, my own work. So that aspect is the only concrete um, thing I can think of that I, that I actively seek and I'm interested in, right? I don't do any, I don't, I'm not really interested in anything else to a point where I'm actually pursuing it. Uh, although I am quite interested and, and uh, uh, in the common thread that all artists and all form of artists have in their approach, in their creativity, in, in how they, they, um, uh, their creative process and how, how I'm always blown away by how they approach things and how they come up with projects and things to work on and how they make connection between various things and come up with these amazingly creative ideas. So that common thread between all forms of arts is what fascinates me as opposed to the art itself. You know, I think it's actually really important that you said that, Bassam, because I bet that there are going to be a lot of people who listen to this conversation and find themselves exactly in your shoes. Like it may have been photography that really was their int um, introduction to the world of art. And I think it's 100% understandable that for many of us, we really will not have been exposed to a lot of art. I know growing up, we I didn't grow up with books in my house. Um, my parents did not have artwork on the walls. They had family portraits, which obviously is still important. Hello, photographers. Um, but I was not exposed to any variety of art as a child at all, aside from whatever was on the television. And I know a lot of homes where this was true. And I don't know how my parents who were essentially a stay-at-home mom and a mechanic raised a pair of artists, but <laughs> that's what they did. Um, and, and I don't know if that's a, a result of the fact that, you know, maybe both of us were looking for that outlet and both of us were looking for that way to communicate outside of just what we could say to one another or what. But I know the, the, the folks that I grew up around, art was not really something that we experienced much of in our lives. And whether that's because of the lack of you know, exposure to it or whether that's because we tended towards other things. I know Becca mentioned you know, mathematics, if you're a science person, or I've heard you talk before, Bassam, about you know, the importance of how you deal with people and your relationship to the people that you're around and being able to help them and those internal connections being something that really motivates you. Whatever it is that stops us from, from having that exposure, being able to choose to do those things now and to explore those things, even from the standpoint of what is it in these things that make them work? How can I steal and apply? Because for me, it is that wide exposure that allows me to be creative. Like that is my through line, like you were talking about. 
it is by being interested in many things, including philosophy and physics and science, all, all of the things. It's, that is my creative through line. I mean, those are the ways that I'm able to take disparate pieces of information and connect them in order to come up with something else, which is what the heart of creativity is. So I think it's important. I think it's incredibly important for you to be able to add that to the conversation. All right. It's a little bit louder now that the holidays are over. I don't have my quiet mornings anymore. Everybody's on the road. It's annoying. I don't know why they can't just let me live my life. <laughs> but we want to hear from the audience today. I am really curious to hear y'all. What other pieces of art or how do you approach consuming other art that can then influence, especially if you're pushing it beyond just here's something I can look at and pick apart because that's obviously important but learning from other artists hearing the way that they approach or their thought processes their creative processes like how do you take and ingest and then regurgitate those for your own work I know that I've heard um, I've heard a lot of digital illustrators talk about uh, you know learning from retouchers on the way that they approach certain things because you can take some of those techniques and flip them around in interesting ways. And there's a, a specific interview, a few specific interviews I did with artists outside of photography when I was still doing the social hour. Someday I'm gonna pick those back up, but it's on, um, on my YouTube, on Nicole Creates on YouTube. But um, I interviewed some illustrators and some painters and it was really cool to look at the way that they got to approach building a scene because from a photographic perspective, they're including a lot of things that we would not want, right? So often when we approach a scene as a photographer, we're finding out what we can take away from the scene. Like, how can I make this less visually noisy? How can I move so that that trash can is not in this photo? How can I move this person so their ears aren't backlit and they don't have all of this, um, you know, subsurface scattering that's turning their ears orange? How can I edit this to pull some of that green bounce off of the underside of their chin from the grass, you know, when it, it threw off my white balance. Like we have all of these really specific things we're looking to remove. When painters and artists and illustrators are looking to add that stuff, they're like, yeah, let me get some great subsurface scattering here. I want to get a trash can in there that makes the photo feel really, or the painting feel really grounded and like it was really set in this place. Like there are all of these things that they approach from a completely different perspective because they're looking for the realism that we capture and we're so often trying to remove it's absolutely wild and really gives you the basis for a little bit more freedom in photography because they're able to obviously if something is included in a painting or a piece of digital art um, they are including it purposefully and then they're getting to do a lot of things like if you look at tyler jacobson's work you will actually find that he is using depth of field um, and he's, he's using it in a way that we cannot with the camera. Like he is sometimes stacking depth of field. Um, like if you were to do focus stacking, but then leave blurry parts as well, he's doing things like that in order to draw the eye. And he controls that obviously with the, his edge control. So how soft the brushwork is, is gonna determine what's blurry and how hard the brushwork is, is gonna determine what's sharp. 
And he can do that in ways that we can't as photographers because it's not realistic to the way that a lens performs and still use other things like foreshortening and all of this stuff that we do as well. So it's really cool to hear from their perspective how they approach composing a visual because we can take and steal those things and ask ourselves those questions like, once we get something into Photoshop, why are we constrained by what the rules, quote unquote, of our field say? Why can't we take some of these things that illustrators are doing and do them to our own work in order to make it more successful at communicating whatever we want to say? Well, we can, but we can't if we don't know about it, if that makes sense. So I see Jean is with us and then I want to make sure everybody has a chance. So if y'all have any experience with the way that art outside of photography influences and how you think about the way you, that you create your work um, or why it's important to consume art outside of photography, would love to hear from you this morning. Jean, please go ahead. Good morning. Um, the psalm really got the juices flowing with you know his uh, uh, adventure in, in investigating uh, film and storytelling through cinematography. Um, you know, obviously, this has been uh, that, that my, my transformation in my path over the past year has been defined by cinematography. And I think that one of the things that I realized is that I, for I think I think for several years, I mean, probably 15, 20 years since I've really been taking photography serious, um, I found myself fascinated by um, watching um, by watching films. And I've always watched films a little differently than other people. I mean, to the point where I'll even miss part of the story because I'm more interested in in how they're telling the story. Uh, through you know the the visual elements that we talked about during that that month, um, I, when I was living in Europe, I I would go to uh, Broadway shows in in London, and I I saw Cats and I saw um, I've seen Phantom of the Opera in several different places, and I think Phantom of the Opera probably is one of the the is the the show that I think had the most impact on me. That and probably also Lion King, the the way that they that they technically use stagecraft to tell those stories has always been fascinating to me. Um, everything from, and I, I don't want to ruin Phantom of the Opera for anybody that hasn't seen it, but the the, the very opening act of, of 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 Phantom of the Opera launches into a, a an element of stagecraft that Andrew Lloyd Webber, you know, was was an absolute genius about. And the way that that element helps take you through time and begin telling the story of Phantom of the Opera, I think, is really where I started to kind of grow that interest in, you know, well, how, how do we tell these stories through moving picture? And I, I, I think I gravitated towards film because I'm not that good at it when it comes to photography. And we talked about this when we did the visual literacy stuff, because, you know, I, and I, I keep going back to the laundromat um, exercise because that was really difficult for me because I've never done anything like that. It's, it's so much easier um, in my mind to tell a story through moving pictures because you have so many different dimensions that you can use to tell the story through. So it becomes much more difficult 
with the with the storytelling and, and the editing process when you're talking about um, still photography. Um, I think the reason why I gravitated toward music videos is probably because I grew up in a generation where MTV, um, back when they used to play music videos, um, you know, was that was that was my constant content. I mean, I, I was glued to MTV. I loved music and I loved the idea of telling these stories in short form through music videos. And I think that that's why um, I've I've been so excited you know, about you know every time I get a music video project because I just I, I love exploring that that element. Um, it, it all came back full circle for me though, when I started entering, um, my stuff into like the tele awards and film festivals and stuff, because you have to have, you know, the film posters. So then I came back now to, okay, how do I create a film poster that can, that can convey the feeling or the, or the, uh, you know, the, the drama or the story in in one image like what what part of this do i capture to let people know what this thing is going to feel like when they see it and i'm not good at that I'm, I'm i am horrible at making film posters i mean if i grow into a filmmaker one day that's something i'm going to have to hire out people to do because i'm just not that good at it i definitely prefer to tell stories through moving pictures um and and then the last thing i just want to add is you know i i think when i watch films it's easier for me because for me a film is sort of a mechanical process there's there's, there's dimensions and elements that I'm able to pick out, you know, from camera movement to uh, focal length to lighting to how how elements of the story are exposed. Um, I, I love Bram Stoker's Dracula. I've probably watched that, you know, four or five times. And every time I see some different element in the shadows, you know, the way the shadows are closing the door behind Dracula and all those cool things that they do. I just I love how all that comes together. Um and so for me, it's easy to dissect the film and then emulate that with the tools that I have um, to, to the best of my ability. I mean, I'm not going to be, you know, uh, Steven Spielberg. But um, what I what I find frustrating is like I would my dream would be able would be to be able to edit uh, photos like Larry, for example. Um, but I can't like I have to take a class or something. I can't look at a photograph and figure out how people do what they do. It's much easier for me to do that in film than it is with photography. And I think that's one thing that kind of frustrates me a little bit. I wish I could do that. And, I, and I'm constantly trying. I'm not going to give up. I'm always trying to pick apart someone's process to see if I can, if I can emulate it because it's, uh, that's how I learn. But uh, anyway, that's, that's all I have to add. Sorry, I had to run across the street to get away from the cars. Um, no, I think, you know, a lot of people have, have brought up film and cinematography as an incredible inspiration. And of course it is. I mean, it takes, you know, the, the moving form of what we do as photographers. And there are a lot of, so I, I did get the chance to interview Pedro Luque. He was a Uruguayan, um, he was a Uruguayan cinematographer. He did, um, he's done a few really cool films in the US and I, I got to interview him about his process and it was really interesting to listen from a cinematography perspective about the, the choices that he made that would influence the look of the movie. They were actually able to use the same glass that was used in Gone with the Wind. And the reason for that was he wanted that, he wanted to hearken back to that look. He wanted visually for those scenes in the movie that were set in what was supposed to be the past. Um, it's a, it's a psychological thriller, so I don't want to give too much away, but um, he wanted those scenes to have that, that feel to them. And so 
a lot of the decision-making process, like they lit so many of the scenes purely with the um, motivated lighting. So fire and candle and things like that. They weren't always bringing in additional lights. And then when they couldn't have those things, they lit them, they faked them. So there was a big trampoline hanging from a boom with a, a huge light behind it to mimic the moonlight, right? So they went out of their way to be able to do those things because visually they wanted to make sure that they were telling that story. And um, my husband and I just watched the movie, The Darkest Hour. It's about Winston Churchill. Gary Oldman plays Winston Churchill. That movie is a fucking tour de force, guys. Not only from the acting perspective, but from the filmmaking perspective as well. There were so many things I would get pulled out of the movie just to look at the way that they were artistically putting things together. It's like, oh my God, did, I'm looking at my, I'm looking at my poor family. I'm like, did you see the way that they just did that? And uh, Dune is another one that visually is just a feast for the damn eyes. But the psychology behind the filmmaking in The Darkest Hour is just really brilliant. It drives my so wife crazy. She's one like, of those... can't you just watch the movie? <laughs> nope. <laughs> it's not allowed. I have learned I can't bring my storytelling skills, though, because once I start telling them what's going to happen at the end, then they really want to strangle me. So I have to keep my mouth quiet <laughs> for that stuff. But uh, yeah, so I think a lot of people can, can definitely connect to the cinematography aspect. So Carol, as a as a, um, an analog artist who works in multiple different genres, this has got to be right up your alley. Yes, it is. And I can relate so much to what you said always about when you talk about your past. Um, we have a lot in common. Um, I grew up in an in atmosphere devoid of art and even of color, because everything in our house was painted U.S. steel gray. There were no even family pictures on the wall. It was just really, really, just like uh, Wizard of Oz, gray, inside, gray, outside in the Midwest. And um, I used to, I had this nightmare that started, it started when I was in the crib, okay? I didn't know that until I told my sister about this recurring nightmare and what it was is I would look at the wall and it had a pattern on it and then I closed my eyes and when I opened my eyes again, the pattern would reappear. I mean, a different pattern would be on the wall and it scared me and it scared me all the way into my teens until I started taking art classes. And I, I decided one night I want to look at the pattern on the wall to see what the changes are, you know. And um, so then it ceased being a nightmare. But years and years later, I told my sister about it. And she goes, oh, because you were sick all the time. You were in a roll around crib and we would roll you to the room that was the warmest in the house. And if nothing else, we did have... We had black and white pattern of, of all things um, on the walls and um, in the living room it had it had some flowery kind of colorful pattern. So I think so much of it is really subconscious and I purposely do not um, in, engage in other art, um, visual arts or anything like that because I want my my processes 
to be original because it's like a science experiment working with the materials that I have on hand. What can I do with them? And I, it's, it's sort of like plagiarism to me when it comes to, you know, writing. Um, I don't want to do anything like anyone else. Now, it doesn't mean that other artists haven't arrived at the same, because I have seen other artists and there'll be people that say, oh, I know somebody that does art like you. Well, they might do one kind of art like I do, but I do so many kinds of art. It's just like, anyway, um, it's just, and then, and then there was um, another, another thing that was when I was in, I was in Spain with a girlfriend and we went and we walked about a mile to go to this bar where they give women free drinks. And so we had our, our fill of tequila, but we talked the whole way. And when it came to walk back, we realized that neither one of us paid attention at all. And then of course we were, you know, pretty well oiled on the trip back trying to figure out how to find our way home. And I was able to do it based on the subconscious noticing this door, that, that you know, patterns that there were along the way. I was able to find our way home by that. So I purposely don't, um, except for pattern design. I've studied pattern design of different cultures. But uh, when it comes to visual arts, I, I don't at all. And also the music thing is, I, my husband would come home and he would say, why don't you have any music on? I purposely didn't listen to music alone because of the emotion it elicited that I felt I couldn't handle on my own. And that's still true. I mean, if he's there, I can do it, but if he's not. So it's it's kind of a, a little bit different journey than um, some of what you're describing. Just so I thought I would share that. Thanks. I think it's actually really interesting, Carol, that you bring in the kind of um, the subconscious way that we still consume the things that we see. And obviously, you know, we're, we're going from purposefully consuming art from the purpose, to, you know, for, for the reason of learning or pleasure or whatever to kind of um, accidentally consuming because obviously um, in Spain, there's so much visually to see there, so much color, so much pattern. Um, it's an old country. And so um, if you're in, you know, part, older parts of the city, you're looking at the cobblestones and all of these beautiful architecture in the building. And there's so much there that you can just inherently kind of fixate upon and grab. And I've mentioned before the salience network, which is basically just kind of a term for the parts of your brain that teach you what, well, you teach them what to pay attention to, what to store away for later information. And I've likened it to if you talk to a skateboarder and you are both walking through a park, you may be seeing the way that the light hits the tree and how it forms patterns on the grass and, you know, all of these different things. And they are seeing where they could potentially trick, where they could grind they are looking at that environment through an entirely different set of eyes, right? And so when they get back, and if you were to leave and ask the photographer and the skateboarder questions about the park, they're gonna give you completely different answers because what they are interested in have trained those parts of their brain on what to pay attention to and what to store away for later use. 
And it's so crazy that we as artists, and obviously you from a very young age, were exposed to a few things that had a really deep impact on you. And when you said that, it made so much sense to me and how that relates to the patterns that appear in your artwork. And um, even to the way that pattern and music are so important and intertwined and the way that that timing and rhythm and punctuation and balance and all of those things can be seen in patterns in artwork. So it makes a lot of sense. And I hope folks will, will take to heart the fact that what you surround yourself with gets inside you. That's why different cultures have different focuses. That's why the difference between, like if you think about a, a Chinese ink painting that's done in, in ink with a brush on rice paper, the rice really sucks up the ink. And so you have to, a, a really important aspect of that style of painting is how much ink or watercolor, if you're using watercolor, is loaded into the brush hairs and where it's loaded. If it's loaded at the tip, if it's loaded at the base, you're going to be able to get different shapes. And the technique of actually laying the brush to the paper is really important. And so when you look at hills in the Chinese countryside and the way that in the morning they will devolve into mist, and then you look at the way that an ink brush is laid to paper and the way that the ink soaks through and then dissipates, it mimics each other. If you look at the art of uh, Native Americans in the Southwest, the colors are pure, they are bright, they are undiluted. If you stand out here in the summertime, that's what you're gonna get. You're gonna get the purest, brightest blues and the most saturated yellows and the richest reds. And you're gonna get a lot of hard lines because we don't get a lot of mist, a lot of fog, a lot of those things out here on a regular basis. So our art is mimicking where we find ourselves. So that unconscious element is so wildly important and it's cool to hear it in your story. All right, so anybody else in the audience today, do you guys have any more thoughts on the way that we consume the things that we see, how that plays into the way that we work? And does anybody have any actual suggestions for folks on ways that they can do this purposely? Because I think many of us may be in Carol's shoes where we're kind of, we're, we're going through our lives and maybe we do feel like if we consume too much, um, you know, visual art, we might be stained. Um, that's a terrible way to use that word, but um, we might be influenced in a way that, you know, takes away some of the individuality. There's certainly an argument to be made on both sides there, but what's important is that if you believe it to be true for you, it's probably true for you. There's a, a sculptor, a really fantastic sculptor, who also felt that way. He did not study the history of his craft. He did not study other sculptors because he believed that that would negatively influence his ability to take the things that he saw and bring them to life. Um, and certainly, you know, that is a really interesting argument to be had. But in any case, I'm, I'm just interested to hear what people think there. And I got a late start this morning, so I probably will be walking till a little bit past the hour. So I'm not in a hurry to, uh, to end the conversation, but I love to hear, I'd love to hear your thoughts, y'all. I think you can approach looking at art though, without the idea of necessarily looking for inspiration or like you're going to copy something. I mean, you can appreciate art for what it is as it exists, um, or even just, you know, as that kind of insight, uh, like Basam was saying, into how our other artists think what those through lines are through various art forms. Um, there's this artist, 
called Gordon uh, Matta Clark. He's a kind of, I guess, modern artist from the 60s and 70s. And I can't even really say that I like his work, but it's stuck with me. And what he did was he deconstructed buildings and then through filmmaking and some illustration and photos, but also um, through like exhibitions and galleries would take parts of these sawed in half buildings and display them. And it's, it's super weird, uh, very, very unique kind of approach to not just creation, but destruction and creative destruction. And it's, it's very interesting, kind of uncomfortable to look at. Um, just how he was approaching, you know, kind of like the devolvement and, you know, death of what he felt of, you know, about the like modern American family, you know, he'd cut up these suburban homes and then put their, you know, chopped up carcasses in a museum is very, very fascinating. I have no interest in doing that. I don't even have any interest in replicating that in any way through the art that I do make, but being exposed to that kind of art, you know, go, doing things like going to a museum or listening to like podcasts from like MoMA or the Met or something, you know, it gives you this view into how other artists think and other ways to be creative outside of the box and the bubble that you live in by yourself. This is Carol. I thought I would add something. I was thinking about how you talked about the spaces between the music beats, right? And it makes me think about um, Japanese art because they look, when they draw, they look at the negative space. They are not focused on the positive space, which is just, I don't know, it's kind of mind-blowing, really. Um, and then the other thing I thought about is arabesque art, where they were not allowed to draw anything. Everything that they did was out of their calligraphy. So they found ways with using only calligraphy to make art, which is heavily, you know, design focused. So yeah, there's different ways of thinking about it. Just thought I'd, I'd share that. Thanks. Yeah, I think I think both of those things are so interesting taken together. Um, and and having studied a little bit of um, um, Sumi-e, I, I actually started learning some of it. The, the actual philosophy behind the way that you paint is so incredibly interesting because the ink is the blood. <laughs> the way that you hold your hand and move your hand. Um, shapes in Sumi-e are often made in one single brush stroke, whether that is in calligraphy, um, the actual writing of the, of the letter itself. The amount of ink that is in the brush is the blood and the strength of the shape that you create is the bone. And it's so, so interesting from a philosophical and almost religious standpoint, um, the way that that art form is approached and how you can see those principles actually spread through so much of Japanese culture. In fact, um, the, it, it turns into a ceremony almost in and of itself. And the purpose of these, these subjects, the, the kind of the four gentlemen that are that are so often painted in Sumi-e, um, you know, bamboo and the iris. Um, and uh, there's a couple other things just off the top of my head, I lost them. But the, the purpose of them is not to replicate the object itself, but it's to capture the spirit of the object. And so the farther somebody gets and the more proficient they become, you actually begin to lose a lot of the accurate shape of the thing, but you, you start to capture a lot of the feeling of it. And so a lot of the bamboo paintings, bamboo in the wind particular is one of them. There are different ways that you paint 
bamboo depending on what's happening to it. So bamboo in the wind and bamboo in the rain are two different things. But the spirit of what you're looking at and the shape and the motion of it are so, they convey so much. And even if you were to look at that and say, you know what, I want to take the way that they are conveying how this thing feels in a different time and place. And I want to explore that in my art. That itself is a thing we can do without taking any of the technique into account. As far as, you know, you must lay the brush this way, the way you hold the brush, the movements are made with the arm. And you could take that separately and say, you know what, when I do my digital art today, I'm going to find out what happens if I make my wrist lock and I use my arm and my elbow. What happens to my line work there? You'll find it becomes incredibly clean because your arm is a much better fulcrum than your wrist often. So there's, a, there's all of these different things that when we study or learn about these different types of art, and like Becca was saying, the intention of the artist, right? Um, there's all of these different techniques and thought processes that we can take and explore, and that becomes a science experiment in and of itself, like you were mentioning, Carol. So it's just such an interesting process. All right, y'all are quieter than usual this morning. Um, so I would encourage, this is if, if I were to um, take the reason I wanted to have this conversation and tie it up into a bit of a bow. Oftentimes, the reason that we don't expand beyond where we are currently at is because we have not been exposed to things that can help us think our way past those problems. And when you constrain yourself within getting a phone call, <laughs> um, when you constrain yourself to only what you believe to be possible within the field that you are creating in, you are cutting yourself off from all the possibilities that exist beyond those borders. And that doesn't mean that given a lifetime of work, you may not arrive in some similar places. As you mentioned, Carol, um, we, there's a, a name for this phenomenon, but we collectively have all the influences of a place, which is what I mentioned earlier, when you look at artwork from different regions around the globe, we're influenced by the things that we see and we experience. And so we have these kind of innate human stories that are being told. We have themes that are being recycled because those things are the truth of our existence. But within our individual fields, we have things that are accepted, right? And somebody has started to put those boundaries on things, whether that is through a governing body and they have decided these are the things that we accept and do not accept, or whether that is through common consensus, right? And that consensus may be built culturally, it may be built um, economically, that is a thing too, um, or it may just be built preferentially based on the taboos of the day, but whatever those consensuses are, they tend to drive what is acceptable within that field. And so often when we have seen great leaps forward in art, it is because somebody has decided to step outside the bounds of that consensus and experiment with something new. Um, and when you look at the, the different periods in art from the Impressionists and the Romantics and, you know, everybody is 
looking and taking different pieces and going, well, what if we approached it philosophically from a different point of view? What if I wasn't concerned with the shape of the thing as much as I was concerned with the light that falls on the thing and what color it is and how it shifts during the day? What if I was, ooh, sorry for the vehicle. What if I was less concerned with the proper perspective? What would it look like if all perspectives were seen all at once? What would it look like if I deconstructed every shape in the movement of your body down a set of stairs and I reproduce that? Certainly does not fall in line with the traditionally accepted norms for that art, but it becomes a really incredible way of thinking and seeing that all of a sudden gets added to your ability to put information together. And that's what I find so important about creativity. We tend to think of creativity as something artists have, right? And most regular lay people will also consider when you say creative, they're going to think art. They're going to think crafts. They're going to think artistic pursuit. That is not what creativity is. Creativity is the ability to take disparate pieces of information and combine them in order to get something new. And most often, this is concerned with problem solving. So the first person to create a spear was, imagine how creative that person had to have been. The first person to realize you could combine clay and do certain things to it in order to make it usable, right? And then beautiful, imagine how creative those people had to be. Um, so creativity is not something that is limited to the field of art, but it does require you to think outside of the bounds or constraints. Now, the interesting thing is that that's a bit of a paradox because oftentimes we need to limit ourselves in order to force our creativity to happen because like I said, it's problem solving. So if I only have these tools to work with, how can I approach this in a creative way? I'll give you an example. My eight-year-old wanted to build a blanket fort yesterday and he had a handful of thumbtacks and he was gonna try to build a blanket fort by pinning things up to the wall. But he ended up with a lot of floppy blankets because you only have a 90 degree angle to work with. So the ends of his forts were just drooping to the ground. And so I went in there and of course, as a professional blanket fort builder, I knew there were things he could do so I asked him if he tried the broom and he's like, the broom is not going to stand up, mom. <laughs> he had all of these reasons why that wasn't going to work. So I went and I got the broom and we brought it upstairs and I showed him how we could layer the blankets over the top of each other so that the weight and tension of the blanket would hold the broom straight. And then trick of all tricks, I showed him how to take a sock and put it over the top of the broom to hold the blankets in place. And his mind was blown and we were able to create a little world with thumbtacks and blankets and socks and a broom. And so sometimes when we constrain ourselves to certain things, it really does force our creativity, but our ability to exceed those things is highly dependent upon all of the things that we can consume and all of the information we have. And the more information we have, the more possibilities we have to put those things together in different ways. So really it is a, it's a GI Joe thing, right? If anybody caught that reference. I'm too young, sorry. Oh, come on. Did anybody else watch G.I. Joe's? Nobody? 
knowing is half the battle. <laughs> okay, well, maybe it's just me. Anyway, so as I we think are it's kind of oh, go ahead, Carol. I was just going to say it's kind of like MacGyver putting things together and the when you reference the constraints that's why I love recycled art because you're working within constraints and you're going to come up with something that can't be duplicated because you have all these disparate items you're putting together anyway Carol I'm done yeah that's absolutely true it's absolutely true so it's it's super interesting to me um and Obviously, this extends beyond art. I mean, as we talked about in the beginning, Becca, with you and looking at your work, I, you, can see, you can see the anthropology in it, right? You can see your interest in the history of peoples and how people have done things and what they've thought about things and where they were and how, the, how that has changed, how that affected all. You can see those things in your decision-making process as well, um, even with things like I love your, your, is it a goblin? It's a goblin, right? The smoking goblin? It's a goblin. It's a goblin. Okay. I thought it was a goblin. Um, in, in the way that she is styled, like her tattoos and her vest and all these things, you can, you can look at her and be like, ah, you start to get an idea for who she is and those different interests. I love how even the things that we love, I mean, you certainly couldn't tell by the work that I create that I'm inspired by fantasy, right? Or, uh, or filmmaking, not at all. It's amazing to me how those things will express themselves even when we are not purposefully going, I think I'm gonna make this anthropological in nature or use my knowledge of medieval history to influence, et cetera, et cetera. We just do those things because we care about them and the knowledge is there. And those things then express themselves and manifest themselves in the way that we work which I just think is so cool. The brain is a wild thing. Whoops, sorry. Um, yeah, I actually uh, just now got an Instagram message from some random new person who, uh, who um, was interested in the Scandinavian mythology in my work. And so, yeah, you, you can pick up on those things. But I just, I wanted to throw out there too, like I feel like it's so, so important to be like very intentional with where you're consuming other stuff too um like I don't know if anyone else like me but you like spend way too much time on Pinterest and you like look up like okay I'm gonna look up xyz kind of photo shoot or xyz kind of painting and then that's you know where you're consuming your art is through search engines specifically um and it's not allowing you access into the greater world really you're allowing an algorithm to decide what kind of art and what kind of visuals you're going to consume so if anyone out there has that problem like I do, um, really intentionally breaking that pattern and making that effort to look in different places where you wouldn't usually look for things um, is gonna give you some really cool stuff to file away and to be inspired by and to you know take into your own practice. Ooh, that's a really good point because if you think about it, what the search engine is gonna give you is what is most popularly looked for and found in those areas, what's repeatedly clicked on, which means that you're getting other people's versions of what you're looking for and you're not getting exposed. Yeah, yeah, it, I, I, that's such a good point, Becca. And that, you know what, I would not have even thought to bring that up, so I'm so glad that you said it because it's absolutely true. If I look for, 
um, you know, fairy tale photo shoot, what I'm going to see is a whole crap ton of white ladies with a lot of makeup and fairy wings. Um, I am not going to see anything outside my own culture. I am not going to see anything, you know, that is new or wild or crazy or interpreted differently. And so that's, it's, it's such a good point. I mean, it's, it's so constrained culturally. It's so constrained by what's popular in those areas and in whatever demographic they feel like you fit into. So yeah, that's, that's a really, really good point. Even, even the places you're most comfortable are lying to you <laughs> about what's there to explore. That's important. All right, I am home, which means we're at the end of our hour. So um, I'd love to hear any final thoughts you guys have as we start to close things down for the day. No final thoughts, no final thoughts. Okay. Many thoughts, but uh, we only had an hour. I know, I know. We'll have to make this a, a topic of conversation for another day, but super grateful that we got to have this, this conversation. I find it so incredibly fun and so cool to think about. And I hope anybody who is listening today will start just asking themselves, where do I consume my visuals? Where do I get information? How do I process it? And how are these things appearing in my life? And even just what we're surrounded by in our homes, the things that we see, the things that we see every day, are those conducive to creating the kind of work or the kind of you know expression that I want in my life how can you change those if they're not and if you do feel stuck if you feel like the work that you're currently creating is not reaching as far as you want it to or it's not properly representing where you want to go man now is the time to go get exposed to some some creativity outside of what you're used to go head to a head to a local um head to a local kiln and go sculpt something go learn how to work with clay you'll be really surprised the way that the tactile nature of that forces you to think differently and using the glazes is a whole different world compared to painting and forces you outside of the way that you would normally think about the act of painting a thing, an object. Um, go and get yourself exposed to something that's different and explore it and dig into it. Don't just look at it and walk away. Try to live in it for a minute and learn as much as you can. You're gonna find that there's so much there to excite the imagination and inspire. And that if you were to take the little pieces of the thing and ask yourself, well, how could I apply this? How could I apply this philosophy? How could I apply this technique? How could I apply this thought process? All of those things are going to allow you to step outside the bounds of where you're at now and bring life to the way that you create in an entirely different way. So, so glad to have everybody with us today. I'm sorry that I, <laughs> I got things started off on a weird foot this morning, but I overslept. I hope you can forgive me. All right. We are going to be a lot more active in the Facebook group, so I hope you will join us there if you are a member um, and go check out the latest article up and re-listen to that blog. Well, it's a podcast. It's attached to the blog, but it, it talks 
about the conversation that we had, I believe it was in November, um, but it was about falling in love with the journey. And at the beginning of a new year, it's so great to have that reminder, y'all. I listened to it yesterday. I was re-inspired all over again through that conversation. So I would highly encourage you to go back on theartistforge.com, head to articles, check out the latest blog post, listen to that listen to that conversation we had because it was a really inspiring conversation full of such great insight on ways that we can not just focus so heavily on the future, but really just fall in love with every step, every forward step we take into our future, every day-to-day decision and the life that we lead and not only our goals. So in the new year, that's an important one because we're all goal focused right now. So we need that reminder. And I hope we will see you tomorrow morning, bright and early at 7 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. That's 6 a.m. for the West Coast and 9 a.m. for the East Coast afternoon for our friends overseas. And in the meantime, go make something amazing. Have a fantastic day, y'all. Thanks again for listening to this live Clubhouse discussion moderated by all of us at The Artist Forge. We hope you found the information useful and that it helps you gain a little bit of insight as to how you work on your craft. For more episodes, please join us each weekday on Clubhouse or visit theartistforge.com. Now go make something incredible.